Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello, everybody. Checking in from one of my favorite places ever. Uh, Well, I'm currently in the town of Gunnison, which, to be fair, isn't my favorite place ever, but staying at my grandparents' cabin, um, just kind of basically just west of Crested Butte, but uh, because of how the mountains work, uh, it's a lot easier to get to Gunnison than it is to get to Crested Butte. Anyway, the cabin is somewhere between Gunnison and Crested Butte, and I don't know, after traveling around this country uh, and in Canada over the past few months, I have to say this spot is still way, way up there. Um, It's just a super magical place. I've been coming here since I was uh, seven or so, and it doesn't get old. It's... um, pretty astonishing to like keep coming back every year and it looks different every year because of how you know what the weather is like this year it uh rained a ton the the apparently the winter was really intense snowed a lot there was lots of wind and then it's been raining constantly so like the grass is up to my shoulders and the wildflowers are going crazy uh we took a hike this morning and i was like dying of sneezing <laughs> Um, I guess because there's a lot of pollen, I don't have allergies, but the growth is just magnificent. Um, so yeah, I've been here for a couple of days. I'm going to head out in a bit and do some more Colorado exploration, go into New Mexico, come back to Colorado, and I don't know, maybe go home at some point. Um, today's episode is with Mike Brancatelli. Uh, he is the host of a podcast called Mikeadelic. Um, hung out with him a bunch in uh, Colorado. Really cool dude. Wasn't planning on interviewing him for my podcast, but that's how this life works. Just meet interesting people and accost them and ask them to be on my podcast. Thankfully, since he has one, um, he was super up for it. So before I get into that, though, man, I have a lot of stuff to talk about and I don't have a lot of time to upload this episode which is annoying because I feel like every time I have a ton of time, I forget everything I want to say. And of course, now I have like a page full of notes and a limited window before I need to get back to the cabin where there is no cell phone service and no internet. Um, But we're going to try and get through this and hopefully uh, it won't take that long. So first uh, thing to talk about is that uh, a solo show is 
going to happen sometime in the next month or so, in the next few episodes. I don't know when exactly. Um, I try and do one every 10 or so episodes. And if you haven't heard one before, it's where I pick a few topics, either just that I want to talk about on my own accord or um, questions that you guys send me. And I give first priority to my patrons. Um, so if you are a patron and you have a question you'd like to submit, please do so. You can email me, Anya, at uh, AnyaCates.com. AnyaCates at Gmail works as well. Send it through Patreon. Send it through Instagram. I don't care. Um, but if you're a patron, uh, you get first priority. If you want to become a patron, you can go to Patreon.com slash AnyaCates. Um, and there's different levels. You can donate a few dollars a month. Uh, at and get access to certain perks, one of which is first priority for questions that I answer on the show. Um, but if you're just a regular listener and you have a question, feel free to send it anyway. Maybe I will get to it, or maybe it'll just align with uh, a topic I'd like to discuss. So send me your questions, AnyaCates at gmail.com or Anya at AnyaCates.com. And you spell my name A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S, which I know is a weird name and a weird spelling. But alas, this is my life. Um, so yeah, solo show happening, send me questions. That's first thing. Um, secondly, I really, I, maybe I'll elaborate on this, um, in another episode, but I really wanted to talk about some of the books I'm reading on this trip. Thankfully, I've had a good amount of time to read, got a little bit of a slow start, but I've read some awesome stuff that I'd really like to talk to you about. Um, one thing that I read though, that really, made a big impression on me, uh, is a book called Palaces for the People. It's by Eric Kleinberg, um, and it talks all about social infrastructure. So um, he talks about natural disasters and uh, just sort of the state of the world and community in this day and age and how fucked we are. Um, and he talks about libraries a lot and basically just talks about like what type of you know, both physical structures, but also social structures um, are necessary to sort of deal with all of the crises that we have from, again, natural disasters or violence. Um, we've really gotten away from uh, any type of viable social infrastructure. And what's interesting is that, like, there is the possibility to create architecture and physical spaces that serve a social purpose. Um, a library is a really good example of that. Or um, in like Rotterdam in Holland, for example, they have created all of these um, spaces in the city to accommodate flooding. Basically, they recognize that f the water is going to come, flooding is going to happen. Instead of trying to put up a wall and prevent it, can we create a space that actually welcomes the water and serves a purpose? So they've got these like sort of beautiful parks in the city that are you know, kind of look like these big uh, basins almost. There's different levels you can hang out and they fill with water and they serve another purpose. There are docks that kind of lay on the ground with chairs and tables and you can use them when there's no water. When the water comes, they're above the water and you can use them in that sense too. So they serve as this sort of social gathering place where people from many different cultures and classes can hang out um, and they also serve this very I imperative um uh, purpose in regard to accommodating the weather and climate change and all of that. Um, it was a really amazing book, and he's written a lot about loneliness as well, and I know I've talked about loneliness a bit on the podcast and our lack of community and how we're living super close to one another, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have friends or that we're in community, like we don't talk to our neighbors and um, we don't have these 
you know, libraries, for example, where all these different people from different walks of life can hang out. Um, he spoke about this amazing project. I wrote this woman's name down. I think it was a woman. Um, love to try and find track her down and have her on the podcast, but she proposed this project where uh, she wanted to transform police stations, um, specifically in sort of rundown or poor communities, into community centers. So like, what if we gave the people of the community a space to hang out, play basketball, etc.? And so there was this natural interaction between police and the residents of the community that was not hostile, and people could get to know each other, and maybe that would bridge a divide. Um, just really inspirational stuff, um, gave me a lot to think about. And it also reminded me of when I first sort of went into my dark night of the soul a couple of years ago. Um, this is something that sort of Mike and I went through in different ways. So you'll hear a bit about that on the show today, but it was interesting because at the time my instinct uh, although it didn't feel instinctual, I have to say it felt a bit punishing, but what I did was isolate myself and I got this apartment in the middle of nowhere and I didn't know who to talk to and I didn't know who to relate to about anything I was going through aside from like maybe one of my fam, one or two of my family members and my therapist. Um, but I was going through a really hard time and I, I felt that what I needed to do was be on my own. Like I've, you know, I've been codependent and I've, you know, uh, depended on people too much in the past and, you know, I need to figure it out on my own and be independent. And I remember going into therapy one day and actually saying this to her, like, okay, I think I know what I need to do. I need to like learn how to fend for myself and I can't, you know, depend on people and I need to figure out how to, um, you know, it, it's such a patriarchal idea of like living on your own and take care of everything. And, you know, you don't, don't, this codependency thing, which I talk about a lot, I think has a lot of validity and is true. But in my case, I think I took it a little too far and I didn't recognize the importance of support and of dependability and of community. Anyway, so I went to therapy and I remember saying this to her and she's like, yeah, okay, like it would probably be useful for you to have some independence. Um, but I actually think what you need to do is learn how to trust people and trust that people will love you um, and treat you well. And I remember like wanting to fight her on that because that felt a lot scarier than just removing myself and being on my own. And I also remember that at the time I rewatched that movie Into the Wild. Um, for those of you that don't know, I'm pretty sure it's based on a true story. Guy goes out into the wilderness, lives on his own, and uh, I'm sort of going to give away the ending, but dies at the end. And one of his sort of realizations, I think he says something like, happiness is not happiness unless it's shared. And I watched this and again, I had that same sort of like frustration uh, and anger toward it. Like, no, like I'm going to figure out how to be just as happy and just as joyful and just as fulfilled on my own. Um, and look, I've traveled on my own. I think I've come to, I've had amazing, amazing experiences alone, but I think it is an equal playing field to being with people who you love and who love you and who do treat you well and who do support you. Um, and anyway, this book really made me think of that. And I wanted to mention it because, man, if I had found a community or maybe tried to start a community sooner uh, when I was going through everything I was going through, I just I wonder what difference that would make. Um, 
I don't really have any regrets. I don't really feel like I could have done anything better than I did. Me starting this podcast was kind of my, I can't find a community, so I'm going to start one myself strategy, um, which has absolutely worked. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to talk about it because uh, this book made me think of it a lot. Uh, talking to Mike made me think of it a lot. And uh, just to once again, repeat myself and express my gratitude for all of you and that I have the ability to share this and to meet people. And um, I think one of the most common responses I get from people is like, oh my God, thank you for talking about this stuff. I feel less alone. And that was the number one goal when I started this. And to get those types of responses is incredible and uh, just never gets old. It just gets better. Um, I also sort of unfortunately... (laughs) I try and not talk about politics on this show too much because, honestly, I don't pay a ton of attention attention to it. I try not to pay a ton of attention to it, um, but sometimes it's impossible, and uh, I know that's a privileged position for me not to pay that much attention to politics. It's not that I don't care, and it's not that I don't vote. It just uh, is kind of traumatizing. Um, and that was definitely proven to be the case. I watched a recent episode of Bill Maher, and uh, I think Bill Maher is a little bit of an asshole, but I respect him and his opinions, and I respect what he does in terms of expressing uh, the unpopular, politically correct opinion. If you listen to the show, uh, you probably know that's what I like to do. So I respect that he kind of goes out on a limb and is willing to talk about uh you know, the middle ground, the gray area, the thing that everyone else is afraid to say. Um, and I, I, I respect a lot of what he says. I don't agree with all of it, but anyway, he had Marion Williamson on his show recently. And, um, again, I don't agree with everything she says, but I really like her and I really respect her. And I'm grateful that someone like her is running because I think she's saying a lot of things that need to be said, like, yes, the healthcare system is broken, but why is it broken? And let's go deeper and let's uncover this layer and this layer and this layer. And let's go back to the fact that like this country was built on genocide and everything is fucked up and the government is <laughs> ridiculous and um, everything everyone talks about is basically absurd and ludicrous. And I respect it so much. And she talks a lot about, you know, principle over policy. And, and I'm watching this. I mean, granted, think I was PMSing, but I'm like literally crying watching this episode of Bill Maher because I was so upset at just how everyone was behaving and acting. And, you know, she's saying things that to me are undeniably true about the, how broken and corrupt these systems are and that it's not even, is it even worth talking about policy when all we're doing is putting band-aids on gunshot wounds. And on one level, I understand the practicality of like, we have to get elected. And I guess we need to work within the system that we have, even though that makes me want to vomit. But like, is there not a space where we can all just sit down and be like, no, no, like, all of this is fucked. (laughs) I think Marianne Williamson said, like politics, the way that she calls it is yada, yada, yada politics. Like, I, I, I'm reaching a point where as much as I don't want anything bad to happen, I'm really not so sure what's going to make a difference in terms of the structurement, the structurement, the structure of our government, um, and the way that we, uh, 
the way that we deal with anything, the way that we govern, you know, like I, I don't know what is going to wake us up or fix anything or change anything unless something really terrible happens. Like Trump says he's not going to leave office or um, threatens nuclear warfare or there is nuclear warfare. Like I don't want people to die and I don't want shit to go terribly wrong. But there's a little part of me that almost wants that to happen because I don't know what else will do it. I feel like we do this moderate flip-flopping back and forth every four to eight years and things are just getting worse. Uh, maybe I'm naive or idealistic about this, but I really don't understand what could possibly be done within the structures that we already have to fix things at the level that they need fixing. Um, and I respect people that are talking about principles. And, you know, I think if we look at any sort of person that's ever been elected, what, what of their policies that they proposed initially actually pan out and are enacted a hundred percent. It never happens that way. To me, what's more important is like, what are your values? What are your morals? What are your principles? And so whatever happens you know, we can't predict what type of policy might need to uh, be created. We can't predict what type of problem may arise. But if we agree to a process or we agree, we agree to a value system, then to me, like, that's, I trust that and that's okay. And it frustrates me. Like, I, I get angry. <laughs> I get upset. I don't know if that's just a generational thing. But like sometimes I'm watching this shit and I just want to throw the computer or the t TV across the room, like watching the debates, like what is going on? This is a circus. And the fact that people sit there and take it seriously, it just boggles my effing mind. <sighs> All right. Enough of that. <laughs> we have to get into this episode. Um, really grateful to have Mike on the show. Uh, Mike interviewed me on his show as well. That'll come out at some point. I'll talk about it when it does. Um, but yeah, uh, enjoy this episode. If you want to support the show, um, tell your friends, send them a link if there's an episode you liked or leave some uh, stars on iTunes or review and hit subscribe. Those all seem like they don't matter, but they actually do. They help the podcast show up in search results. And if someone sees the podcast has a good amount of reviews and a great, good amount of stars, they're more inclined to listen. So um, you can also always go to patreon.com slash Anya Cates and donate some money every month. But as I say all the time, like a broken record, um, what's most important to me is that this podcast reach is as many people as possible. So if you are uh, in a pinch in regard to money or time, send a link to your friend. Just hit subscribe on iTunes if you already listened to it. Uh, leave some stars. Literally takes like a second to do that in your podcast app. You can do it right now. Take out your podcast app. Scroll down after all the episodes. There's little stars. Just hit five stars or one if you think this podcast sucks. And um, that helps a lot. And if you have like a few extra seconds, you could leave a review and that'd be awesome. Um, that's it. Love you guys. Enjoy the show and catch you on the other side. Okay. I'm here with Mike. What's your last name? I know I've heard you say it like six times. But... Yeah, no problem. It's Brancatelli. <laughs> Brancatelli. Yeah. And uh, we discovered the other day it's that... Polish. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Italian. <laughs> uh, yeah, we discovered the other day that we've led, like, s shockingly similar lives. Yeah. It's we... kind of mind-blowing. 
what were it? We grew up in sort of the same town, mm-hmm. Nyack. Mm-hmm. Shout out. West Nyack. West Nyack. I was just uh, talking about the Palisades <laughs> Mall yesterday. Yeah. And how it was, what was it, built on a toxic waste dump? It was and, built on a toxic garbage dump. And sinking. And sinking, yeah. And like Rosie O'Donnell tried to bring awareness and it didn't really work very well. Yeah, so did my mom. Really? Uh, yeah, my mom was involved in like the town city council and like my friends would make fun of me for it because they're like, oh, what, is your mom going to go chain herself to the construction site? And like, yeah, she made like <laughs> signs, stop mall expansion and stuff and, uh, you know. That ended up being a, like a staple of my childhood experience. Me too. Sure. Yeah. Hanging out at the mall, <laughs> cruising the mall, mall rat style. Yeah. We probably passed each other. It was yeah. super weird. Yeah. So we were pretty similar in age. We grew up in the same town. We worked in marketing yep. for a while and I guess obviously have podcasts born in August. Yep. <laughs> um, and I'm really, I'm excited to have you on the show because I feel like we've had very similar experiences, but in different ways. Right. Um, and one thing that I don't have a lot of experience in is psychedelics, which is kind of your thing. Um, and I really want to showcase on my show, like different stories of people our age who have sort of come to similar conclusions in different ways. Um, do you feel like in terms of your, I mean, I know you probably over the course of your life thought about things in a unique way as it relates to like social constructions and why we are the way we are in our world. Do you feel like it was a gradual process for you in that? Or was there like a, like moment where you really were like, fuck this, this is crazy. And I'm a new person now. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I've had multiple moments of fuck this, you know, multiple moments of like, you know, Jim Brewer and Half-Baked, like, fuck this job. I'm out of here, man. Who's coming with me? You know, I've had multiple of those those moments. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of like been gradual, too, because there's always been this like, you know, like I was telling Chris, like the the fear of being like too far out there and too crazy and maybe I'm like a schizophrenic or something. So, you know, like I got to kind of temper that. So it was always kind of like coming into that moment and and realizing something and then kind of tampering it down and being like, well, wait, is that really true? And then kind of investigating and then coming to a new moment. Um, And really, I mean, the, the, the biggest one, the biggest ones were in 2012 and in, in 2016, uh, 2012 with a profound LSD experience and then 2016 with a very profound ayahuasca experience. And then, so those, those moments helped give me the confidence, uh, to think more in for myself and, and stay true to like what I feel is right. Yeah. <clears throat> Growing up. I mean, I think we probably had a similar experience. I always talk about it in a way that's like, I feel like I, on many levels, knew who I was and knew I was different or alien in some way. It wasn't that I didn't know that. It was just that I didn't feel like I had a place in the world. Did you experience that as well? Like, did you have friends that you felt like you related to or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think what happened for me was that I fell into the trap of cool. Mm. Like I, I fell into the trap of like. I want to conform to what like the, you know, the cool kids are doing. 
because I wanted a place. Like I wanted to be accepted. I didn't have one at, at my home. It was it was not a pleasant time being in the in the household. A lot of anger and violence and and you know rage. And so I I was just trying to find something. And I felt like I could make these kids laugh and they would have me around so I could be with them. But it, there wasn't much depth to it, you know. Um, so I kind of always was like more isolated in that feeling, you know, until later on, like later in my 20s, in my mid-20s. Yeah. Um, and you didn't, you not graduate from high school? Is that Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my guidance counselor uh, advised me to drop out. Great advice. Great advice, right? <laughs> like, kind of sarcastic, kind of not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he they the general consensus of him and all the principals and teachers and and everyone was we we just don't know what to do with this kid, and uh, so the the theory was that if I left high school early, I could get a GED, which would allow me to go to college, community college, where I would be in a more free environment where I can choose my classes. And, you know, I guess there was some truth to that. I think it were, it was okay because I started to get – I was like, oh, this sounds like an interesting class. Like I'll take this creative writing class or this class on like de- – de- I was on like a debate team. I did persuasion and learning about that kind of stuff. And so it was kind of cool in a way, but – yeah, they, it was just kind of like, we don't know what to do, therefore go away, sort of, you know. And how did you, like, what was your inner thought process at this time around this? Like, were you... I was really angry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a very fuck you attitude to authority. And, you know, yeah, I I I could be totally consumed with, like, ecstatic rage, which is scary. Um, really scary because it's like tapping into this, this place of like almost like really like, like a powerful, powerful place where I could really cause a lot of destruction and damage. And that was my way of, of expressing like control over my environment to some degree. So I had a lot of anger and I felt like and I kind of also like sort of embodied it a little bit. Like I'm this fucking rebel without a cause, man. And you don't understand me and fuck you, man. Like, you know, like I really played that up a little bit. Cause I felt like that was where I fit. That was pretty much it. Like I, I had this, I had this idea of maybe like searching, you know, like my innermost guidepost trying to like direct me to things, but it wasn't at the surface level of my consciousness at all. It was yeah. very clouded. Where do you, oh, it's funny, we just interviewed someone who is a therapist who focuses on male rage and like obviously how anger is a secondary emotion to, you know, sadness and grief and fear. Was right. there like a moment where you recognize that in yourself of that the anger was sort of an expression of this like deeper primary emotion? Yeah, I, I definitely felt that probably a couple of years ago. Mm. Yeah. Uh, th- there, it had been falling off. I think I was at peak rage around like maybe 15 and then slowly it kind of started to dissipate and, but it was still there. You know, there's still moments, even to this day, I can get angry and, and, you know, uh, it's not good, but it's very minor now. It'll be a blip, uh, maybe one minute instead of two days, weeks, but I did 
yeah, uh, I did discover that like I was definitely like had a lot of trauma that I needed to deal with. Shame was a big one. Um, and, uh, and, and fear big one too. Yeah. Did the, this happen for me for sure. Like the recognition of the trauma almost like reinstigated the anger in a certain way. Mm. Like that I'd like rep- at least toward my childhood and parents that I sort of like repressed a lot of that and sort of take, t- took it out in different ways at different things. And then sort of like coming to the realization of what had happened put me into this place of like, fuck, like I can't believe I experienced that. And that anger sort of felt like really good and authentic. Yeah. 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 I think cause it's just, it, it almost kind of feels like when it feels that way, it almost feels like an answer, you know? Um, but when you say that you had recognized that it was, what did you, what word did you use instigating or? Um, I don't remember what word I used, <laughs> but re- like recognized, um, oh, the anger, like yeah. how it felt. Yeah. With that tr- it, that it felt real right. actually, you yeah. know, and that I think I'd probably been passive aggressive in a lot of ways and just repressed everything as I could just to continue on. And because I think like, especially like I grew up in a suburban area wasn't poor. I had a roof over my head. Like both parents were in my life to think that there was trauma there. Like that wasn't a narrative I understood. Right. Or even if I expressed that, that people would accept. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. The hierarchy of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, yeah, I was talking about this the other day, like that's the suburbs produces a, a different kind of trauma and pain in my opinion, you know, not, not just to give the whole, that whole area, like a blanket prescription. But, you know, I noticed like around me too, like kids that I was, that I was friends with, they had a lot of money. They had a four car garage, a pool in the back, you know, Mercedes, they go on vacations, but they were getting into like Oxycontin and pills and, you know, just because they were hurting and they were in pain. And it's like, where's that pain coming from? Well, obviously something is causing it. So is, is that pain, less significant because of this affluent suburban kid than it is for someone who's really in like physical turmoil in some country where it's conditions aren't so good and things like that. Um, I, I don't know. I think, you know, pain is pain and trauma is trauma, right? And your it's your experience and how we relate to it. But there is, yeah, I know what you're saying because I felt like that too. Like, who am I to complain? Or like, yeah. this isn't this isn't good enough. This won't, you know, be accepted in the trauma academy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like hearing you talk about that. Like, obviously, I feel like there's. I felt this personally some sort of like whitewashing of my own experience. Like, well, because you had this and you had this and you had this. Like, you know, think about the good things that you had, and therefore the bad ones aren't relevant. Um, but it's sort of like what society and culture I feel like does. like entirely right to like oh if we have the job and we're successful and we have this and we have the roof and we have you know the political system looks like it's operating well then you know what right does anyone have to kind of say anything bad you know it's only the sort of blatant forms of trauma or abuse that get called out right yeah um yeah it's like what does he have to complain about he's got money well, I mean, you know, that, that's, that's the logic of, of the material yeah. game, you know, and, and I don't, 
you know, that's not suitable. It's not like a suitable answer to be giving to people. It's like, no, you know, I think a little bit more compassion, a little connection and community, but you know, and, and with your podcast, you know, talking about this idea of like millennials, like, Oh, what are you whining about? You whiny millennials or, or something like that. Or, you know, it's like, I, I think that, yeah, it's, 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 it's a different kind of pain for a different kind of time. Yeah. Did you growing up like coping? What, what did you turn to? Abusing drugs, drugs. and alcohol and <laughs> yeah. women and like every, whatever, you know, just, not, I just didn't, my whole thing was to really totally externalize my, you know, the conflicts, the energetic conflicts going on inside of me, the emotional conflicts going on inside of me that I didn't have the capacity to understand at the time. So the way that I dealt with it was by being very aggressive externally. And, you know, if I was going to go out with my friends and drink, like I was going to drink, you know, 12 beers until I puked and then I would do Coke. And then, you know, if I was in relationships, I would just lie and cheat and whatever. It just, I just didn't care about other people as much. And I think I was just putting all of my pain on the outside world and those relationships. And that, that was, that was my kind of, you know, coping mechanism. And, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Gabor Mate and he talks about these coping mechanisms as being a way to escape from the present moment of pain that can't be dealt with. Right. And so I was prescribed Adderall as well. And it's like, look, like, I'm trying to get out of this pain, but I don't have a way to escape from it. So I'm just going to do the thing that's going to give me the most immediate gratification right now uh, to the limits of my understanding of myself and the world at that time. Uh, so definitely not healthy coping mechanisms, but they were, they were methods. Yeah. I reference this. I talk about Gabor Monte all the time and reference this one thing that I think plays into um, what we were just talking about, about like him presenting stacks upon stacks of data, you know, sort of proving that this like childhood trauma is cause for so much illness and addiction and that like presenting this to a room of medical professionals and they're literally like silenced and dumbfounded because, because I feel like the only way to integrate that information is to actually integrate it and not project that it's something else. Right. Like, right. <laughs> and that's, like, I think that's the the issue with the suburbia thing or the whitewashing of experience. It's like, well, if you lived in suburbia but had trauma, like, what does that say about me? Or what does that say about my kids' health issues or my kids' addiction? And it's like we can't move forward unless we're all integrating all of this stuff. <laughs> right, yeah. It, and where, you know, where we grew up, there's very much this kind of, like, prevailing attitude of, like, let's not, like, let's not expose that thing like let's sweep it all under the rug everything's nice and normal and cool here like we're just gonna have martinis and go do power yoga and everyone smile you know kind of very um like do you, you watch black mirror the the episode with the social like the likes and stuff i, I don't think. know i've watched like just a couple of them. yeah it's uh it's a good one it's um everyone everyone has to be nice and be happy and you get rated on it like right away <laughs> I think, yeah, I talked about this, I think the other day, like this kind of Stepford wives type right. mentality of like, everything's, everything's totally normal and fine here. And if you're go cause if you're going through things like that, my experience was if, even if I wanted to sit down and like talk about it, the attitude was kind of like, like sack up, you know, like get, get with it. Oh, there's something 
wrong with you. There's something wrong with your brain chemistry. You need pills or you need, you know, you got to fall in line and get with the program. Um, yeah, and that, that just causes more pain, I think. Did you get that, that you you need pills? Yeah. This isn't normal. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, that, I... What were you... Did you Were you prescribed anything? <clears throat> I wasn't. Um, I, I almost was. Uh, uh, but specifically in the time when I was sort of like... I heard you talking about a dark night of the soul, which is definitely sort of what I went through between like 27 and 29. And I had repressed so much shit and would like jump from relationship to relationship so that I didn't have to feel the pain of the past relationship and just totally live in denial. And uh, eventually it, it caught up with me and I got like physically sick. I like got divorced, moved out of my house, moved back in with my mom. Um, every single thing that could happen happened at the same time. And I was in like the deepest pit of despair that I had ever been in. I think really I was just like feeling emotions for the first time, but that felt insane. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, you know, told it wasn't normal that, you know, you need to take medication, that there was, um, mental illness in the family and that maybe that was what was going on with me. And I, for whatever reason, even in the pit of like, this is the last place I, I want to be. And this feels terrible was the sense of like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Like, I don't know where the hell this is going, <laughs> but I have a feeling that there's something coming and like, I'm not going to take the pill <laughs> um, because I felt like the grief and sadness was teaching me something. Um, well, to totally. I mean, that that's and that's the thing that we're like trained to ignore. The tr thing that we're trained to like mask, you know, the the pharmaceutical industry is like, well, you don't you don't want to feel these nasty bits. Just take this nice stuff. Side effects may include like cannibalism, suicide. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like what like. The yeah. pain is is informing us, right, of what is going on, and that's good information to have. You know, I think it's just we we need to have that. It's you know, my dad is on antidepressants right now, and he's been on antidepressants for six years, and eh, part of me thinks my mother kind of drove him to that place, but you know, it, he's supposed to be kind of weaning himself off, but he's not, and he. You know, he makes these jokes like, oh, time to take my happy pills. <laughs> and it's it's like he's still there, but he's not all there. Like, And, he, yeah, he used to have emotional outbursts and he used to get angry and he used to have be more – he used to be more emotional. There used to be an emotional depth to him. And now he's just kind of in this like vanilla middle zone. And I, it's a little upsetting to me and – you know, I, I think that if we want to feel the, the highest highs, we also have to be prepared to feel the lowest lows. And that's not going to feel good. It's not going to be okay. But it's a way to, to integrate and to heal and to actually plug yourself back into society and maybe start to walk and be the change informed by the pain to, to do something um, that maybe can help other people get out of that quicker and sooner too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, this among many other things, I feel like that I talk about my on my podcast, like I feel are so taboo kind of being 
you know, critical of medication like that. I think there's at times a use for it, but it's hard not to look at it all like some grand fucking conspiracy with all of these. Like, you know, if we don't feel and we don't experience and we don't authenticate, then we're just fucking robots. And well, I I mean, (laughs) it it is a a conspiracy. I mean, I mean, conspiracy in the sense that the people who, um, are attracted to these like positions and who are, uh, you know, that don't, that don't have the capacity for emotional depth that maybe a normal person was like, you know, like a psychopath or sociopath and these kinds of people, they're, they're more willing to make deals and do favors for other people that are in positions of power that, that benefit them and not humanity. So in a way it kind of is like a little bit like that, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, I you can connect all the dots, too. I mean, whether, like, the healthcare system and the prison industrial complex, like, all of these things sort of link back to the same idea that people, that we do whatever we can to prevent people from, like, feeling and being their true selves and living authentic lives. And that, like, that sort of simplicity is what uh, provokes all of this other bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah the the simplifying of the human, you know. It's just uh, I I mean you know I I think the the powers that be if they could have it their way they would just turn everyone into robots, you know. It's just like, all right, just carry out your tasks. Really, I mean, what's what it is is it's just like you know we're we're getting convinced to play this game where we use the most valuable resource we have, which is our time and our energy, to to you know trade that in for some paper that is the currency of the time that we can then buy these like things that are supposed to make us happy. Like if you watch all the commercials, they, and you know, from being in, in marketing, right. And like, I did this shit too. And like, I'm, I'm I'm not proud of it, but the psychology behind why people click and why people buy and what people are attracted to every single, you know, company that's, doing well right now is selling by emotion and they're selling with like you come home we were in the movie theater the other day and we the coke commercial right it's like ooh, have a coke and you'll get the girl and you'll be this guy it's pulling on our heartstrings to say we we know what human beings really want it's love and compassion and connection with other people uh family and friends and so if we can say that this product or this thing will do that we can get them to keep working on the treadmill and then you'll come and you'll get your little consolation prizes. Like, Here you go. This is the thing that's going to fill that up inside of you. And look, it's going to make you happy and, and all that stuff. And when it doesn't, then we need the pills. And then when the pills have the side effects, then you need more pills. And where does it end? It doesn't. <laughs> what, so when was the first time you did psychedelics and was that, one of these sort of like eye-opening experiences for you or? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I dabbled in, like, I just took psychedelics. Like I took anything else. Like they were just drugs. Like when I was Mm. in high school and, you know, college a little bit, I didn't really know too much about it, but then, you know, I had this, this profound LSD experience and it, it really like it, it pulled, it, it showed me like, Oz behind the curtain, you know, like I was like, Oh shit. Like all this stuff that I had thought my whole life and that I was sort of been reading about, I really, instead of having this kind of like 
intelligent or intellectual understanding of it in the mind. I had this kind of full body immersion of validation and confirmation that like I get like it's gelling inside of me. I get it. And, uh, yeah, I think that the, on my show, like the intro to, to my show, I have a little clip from Terrence McKenna that says psychedelics aren't illegal because a loving government is afraid that someone's going to jump out of a third story window Psychedelics are illegal because they decondition you from the borders and the boundaries of the cultural institutions and the dominators, and they make you realize that everything that you've ever known was a lie. Yeah. And that happened. That happened. <laughs> and why do you think like that time in particular – like I'm, I'm always curious about this, right, in terms of people's growth and like how all of this stuff has to come from within us. Like no one can tell you to grow or to evolve um, and that it has to be like the right time in the right place and yeah. you have to like be ready to experience it. What do you feel like were the sort of ingredients that made this particular experience as profound as it was? Ooh, good question. I like that. The <laughs> ingredients. I like what you said, like, no one could tell you to grow or evolve, but I'm yeah. like thinking like, maybe I should just start telling people to grow and evolve. <laughs> like walking down the street, like, Hey, you need some growth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they're like thinking about it later. Like maybe that guy was right. <laughs> I should be growing, you know? Um, like, com yeah. Compassionate heckling or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you should invent it. <laughs> we'll see if it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There was this. There was a scene. I think remember in the movie Big Daddy, where the guy like walks by and he's like all like this like punk emo guy, and he's like, oh man, he's all angry and shit. And then uh, he like bumps in Adam Sandler, and he turns around. He's like, "Fuck you!" And he's like, "Hey man, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, man." And the guy's just like, "Oh, oh my dad never never loved me. You're right. It's not my fault." <laughs> like, yeah, com compassionate uh, advice in, in in the public square. But yeah, the, the ingredients, I really, I don't know. I just, I, I've always just had this feeling like I just, that there was something going on that the people weren't, that there had to be more than just like this material uh, reward system. Like there had to, there had to be something like, this is it. Like this is, this is it. And so that like the ingredients, I guess, were always kind of listening to my gut. Like trying, trying, trying to listen to my gut and trying to go into the places that, you know, I think it's really difficult for people to do these sorts of things when they have invested, you know, so much in a particular kind of identity and lifestyle and, and friendships. Um, you're part of a, a play. You're part of an act. And you're on the page and it's your lines. That's your script. And your friends are used to you saying certain things and being a certain way. And when you, when you know that that might not be who you truly are and you try and go in a different direction to listen to your gut, there's like this kind of almost like hostility that can happen. Like, whoa, where are you going? You're not reading your lines, man. You're di divergent from the script. Like, what are you doing? You're shaking up this whole universe and – and it can be perceived as like a condemnation of their lifestyle as well. Like it could be like, no, like this is the way, this is the normal way. But I think that the, the ingredients for me all came from me just following that feeling. And I got into so many different areas with, you know, it's like driving without GPS in the dark and just being like, all right, there's a road there. Let me see if I can get on the highway this way. 
and that was like comedy or that was um, thinking I wanted to be an actor or writing or wanting to be a shaman and drinking ayahuasca and living in the jungle. And I just like trying on experiences and trying on uh, different kinds of ways of being until I feel like something's touching me that's saying yes. You know, the feeling that you have when like you feel alive, like you are living in life. You're not like a part of it or existing in it, but you're really like woven into the fabric of whatever reality in the moment that you're, that you're at. And like, for me, that's everything. And I'm just trying to find that all the time. Yeah. Which can be pretty isolating. I feel like, especially at the beginning, like I always say that in part of this process, there were like so many deaths, right? There was like the death of my own identity. And, but I feel like the most traumatic death of all was the fact that like once you evolve or change in a drastic way that then everything around you looks different like your relationship to everything so people right like oh okay I'm this new person let me go back to those people that were in my life before and like they'll embrace me with open arms and I was like fuck no like that was the thing that pushed me into the hole to begin with and like this world and my job like everything died right um, did you experience that after this psychedelic experience or? Yeah, to- totally, yeah. totally. And, um, a, a book I really like a lot is called the end of your world oh, by yeah. Adja Shante. I have a that spiritual... on my list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great book. I think he's a really good, um, I don't know if I want to call him a spiritual teacher, but I guess that's the limitations of our language for now but yeah and and it's this kind of crumbling away this deterioration of all these false things that were there so that the real thing can emerge the real thing was was always there you know it was there when you were a kid um and then it just gets you know like a garbage dump all this culture and you know parents and friends and peer pressure whatever gets like dumped on us But yeah, I had this experience of getting rid of like, you know, defragging the computer, so to speak, and like seeing like, oh, yeah, like recently, actually, I've been doing uh, ketamine therapy um, and I had this session where I was like, man, seven year old me was awesome. Like, I want to be seven year old me. I was like wild and cool and like just whatever, like I just would run around and do whatever I, you know, like be being free and being open and being curious and having that child's mind. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I really, uh, I've really forgot your, your initial question, <laughs> but yeah, just getting back to seven year old me. Yeah. The know. experience of like death yes. in going through these sort death of and going through, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. That could be For really sure. challenging. Yeah. And it's a really real thing. Uh, and no, I don't think there's any really good answers other than just recognize what's going on in, inside of you and uh, try and communicate with people that you can trust or that find people like that uh, to help you through it. Because I don't think that what's happening inside of us is – you know, I think we have a tendency to question, you know, like you were saying, like this, all this stuff happened. 
but I think it happened for a reason. Like it happened to inform you of something and like really kind of getting as much as you can out of that relationship with your, with that moment, you know, of like dying and being reborn. Yeah. I love that you said that. I would love to talk to you about this because I've been thinking about it a lot. This whole concept of everything happening for a reason, which I'm super inclined to buy into <laughs> um, because I feel like I've experienced that in so many ways. Have you thought about this before? Like, and whether or not that's somehow, I don't know, utopian or, or, or maybe the, the, the right way to look at it is like everything can happen for a reason. If you choose to, learn something from every experience that yeah 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 i mean like objectively like god like peeking his like head out of the sky and be like everything happens for a reason (laughs) folks like no yeah like i don't think like everything happens and then you make the reason for it i think like every things happen and if you have the ability to understand that you have a choice of how you interpret the situation, if that choice is a choice that helps you get through, you know, like my, my girlfriend's into Oracle cards and, and things like that. And at first, you know, I've scoffed at it and you know, astrology. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, sure. Whatever. Like, uh, like I'm a, Venus is in the house of the rising Saturn or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, very just whatever. I don't believe, but you know, there's the the power of belief that you can't really like contend with that. Right. I mean, there's some people in this country that believe something so much that that becomes their reality. You know, um, is that the true reality? Well, I think for them it is, you know, like we, we tell kids that Santa Claus is going to come at night and deliver gifts and, create this like magical reality for them. And in a way it kind of is real for us too. In a way we've introduced it into our culture. We buy the decorations. It's in the books, it's in movies. And, and that time of the year, it really kind of this magical imagination emerges that allows us to step into this fantasy world for a little bit which has value i think um but you i think that it can be dangerous too because in the movie that we saw last the other night like the manson family like he believed that he was getting these messages and that he should go kill so it's like yeah i mean you can kind of attach to whatever you you believe in um but if it's something that's not serving you and if it's something that's going to cause harm or to others, then you might want to think about that. Yeah. Did you have experiences within psychedelics or just your overall growth of like being disillusioned or skeptical or like realizing you were full of shit all the time? (laughs) Yeah, I still do. Oh, I love when I realize that I'm full of shit. Yeah. It's so, it's such a joy the other day, I was we were drive, driving with my girlfriend. We had like a four hour drive to Aspen. We were going camping in like the this White River National Forest or something near Aspen. And on the way up, we got into this thing about the death penalty. Great conversation for a long road trip, you know. And uh, I don't know where the hell I went with this thing, but I was going somewhere, and 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 I think she was because I was like, okay, so you're telling me that if someone raped and killed a a child that you wouldn't want to incarcerate that person. 
she's like, well, I believe that everyone's good and that it's not really them and that, you know, they can be redeemed. And I'm like, are you, I'm like, no, like we need to extinguish this person from the planet, you know? And I had gotten so tied up in my narrative and my believies, you know, like my little beliefs as like Louis C.K. says, it makes me feel good. Like it makes me feel like I'm in control or that I know something or that, no, this is right. And then, and when we, we got to the camps. We kind of like had sort of made up in the car a little bit. And then we got to the campsite and we had taken some mushrooms that night. We were sitting around the fire and later on, like we went into the tent and we're, I'm laying there and, and I just, I'm like, I just started laughing. I'm like, what a fucking douchebag I am. I'm so full of shit. What a douchebag. And I'm like laughing and laughing and I'm imagining myself. I'm looking at myself in the car, like almost like a camera from above. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, you don't understand. The statistics say this. You just don't get it. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what a douche. And so, yeah, like that, these cleansings happen. These realizations happen for me all the time. And I'm so grateful for them, you know? Yeah. Because I feel like, I mean, I, we talked about this the other night. I definitely did an astrology apprenticeship and like that was totally, I think similar to some people who do psychedelics, like that was my medicine for that time in my life. It was like, that's what made me feel like there was a meaning and a journey and a path and that it all, you know, was happening for a quote unquote reason. But for sure also then realized how, I mean, at first I feel like initially I was like, I'm a God, like I'm this like special, amazing person. And then sort of went into like, I'm not that, but I have this sort of skill set and knowledge that I, that other people don't have. And then it like broke down a little bit further, which was just like, it's almost impossible to know when we're creating uh, narratives Mm -hmm. and projecting, right? Yeah, the danger zone. Yeah, I mean, and I still now, I mean, in this current day, struggle with that because, I I mean, I'm I'm super grateful, like the Carl Jung quote, like everything you dislike about other people is what you dislike most about yourself. So I literally like walk through my life and like any time I sort of either feel like I'm putting someone or something up on a pedestal or have any sort of type of like anger or aggression that I flip it back on myself and try to think about like what that means about me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But fuck is that exhausting? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Right. It's like, and I think that's why a lot of people don't do that because it's easier just to do the other thing. And then plus we don't really have the time. We're not like, you know, our overlords aren't necessarily like allowing us to have a space to like go into that place. It's more just like, Hey, like, you know, do what you're going to do and then you deal with shit and here's the ways get drunk, drink some coffee, get the hell out of here, take a pill. So yeah, that, that, uh, that's really helpful. And I think it's really, really hard for a lot of people to, to contend with the differing perspectives that life brings different religions, different views, different, you know, there's so much and is it all true? Is it all false? Is it all good? Is it all bad? Is some of it good? Which ones? Um, and it takes a lot of like emotional and cognitive ability to like wrestle with those things. And, um, but that you're that the fact that you're doing it is great. You know, I mean like be like a, you know, be like a, 
archaeologist of your soul and your your human experience. Like dig dig it up and find out what's going on. That's the most interesting thing about life to me. Like one of the most interesting things. Yeah. How do you feel like this is like heightened or different because you have this sort of public image? Like, do you feel like you wrestle with it more so or in a different way because you're kind of like sharing knowledge with the world in a way that's more collective? Yeah, (laughs) totally. I hate it. Like, it's like I constantly, so I go into periods of like total confidence and, and, pride in what I do and filled with like fits of total like self-loathing and criticism and extreme criticism and oh my god why did I say that who the fuck am I I can't be like I'm not you know it's but yeah imposter syndrome yeah 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 people always are like comment on having a podcast and wow, like you're so brave and you're so this. I'm like, do you realize like I'm just as fucking terrified as you are, but I'm just doing it anyway. <laughs> like, right. Hell yeah. 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 That's a great point. Like when I went traveling, I remember and I came back, I had friends who in New York were like, wow, that's so cool that you could do that. I wish I could do that. I'm like, motherfucker, you make fucking a hundred grand a year. Like, you got – that's enough. You don't need any more than that. You've been working and saving your whole life. Fucking take time off. Go. Go. Do the thing you want to do. Do that thing. And if you're scared, do it more. Like that's where you need to – and I think for me that's been a litmus test of like – you know, like or a barometer. Like, oh, am I – is there like something coming up for me where I'm like scared to, to do something? What What does that mean? And for me, a lot of the times I, I get into places where I isolate myself. I don't want to fucking talk to people. I don't want to go hang out. I don't want to do any of this stuff. I just want to be alone. I don't want to be a part of anything. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that's okay. But then I, I'm, I'm like, okay, let me really check in what's going on here. Oh, shit. I, I need to do the exact thing that I'm afraid to do. I don't want to go talk to people. I don't want to go to this event that I committed to going to. I don't want to be there. Oh, yeah, good. Hey, sure. How you doing? Okay. You know, all that boring, monotonous stuff. Dive into it. And I and that's that's given me strength in the last couple of years to really, like, keep doing that. And then the more you do it, you build this muscle. You build the muscle of, like, just doing the thing, doing the thing. You're afraid, do the thing. Afraid, do the thing. And... Yeah, I mean, I'm not like a f- master of it. I'm just practicing it. Yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah, and like finding the balance between, you know, sort of what I said earlier about this, like not, ex- like I always think about like there are some people that figure this out, obviously, and there are some people that don't. And I think I spent a good deal of time when I started figuring things out, being like saying, well, if I can do it, they can do it. And I was in therapy at the time. I remember her saying like, well, look, okay, in some sense perhaps, but also like, Maybe they had two parents that were really abusive. Like maybe they weren't super educated. Like that makes a big difference. Like there are all these different factors involved. So to like still be able to do the thing and not project that onto someone else. I mean, with the podcast, especially it's like, how can I share things in a way that's, you know, vulnerable enough, but not preachy and not, um, God complexed in any way and not really expecting that anyone else, (laughs) 
can or should do the things that I'm doing, right? Just like being myself on a microphone, which is so fucking millennial. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking can we like when this comes out, can we hashtag so fucking millennial? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that whatever it is, if it's on, if it's doing a podcast, if it's doing a YouTube thing, if it's doing an Instagram page, if it, whatever, whatever, if it's like making pottery or whatever your like impulse is to creativity. And then who, where does that come from? Like how, like you said, like how do people find out about this or, or whatever? Right. Like some people kind of like awaken to this realization that they want to something more and they want to do something creative, but some people don't. And then some people also don't want to, and they're, you know, and I mean, who are, like I used to be kind of like really super critical and judgmental, right? Like, like it would be the Super Bowl, and I'd be like sitting in my room, like on Facebook, like enjoy your bread and circuses while <laughs> civilization crumbles beneath us. All of you people getting fat in the hog, and like, shut up, man! Like, you know, it's like there. I guess maybe that's like a necessary evolution to, to the kind of way of thinking to have that in balance, but. Um, I think some people are just really kind of comfortable in, in the way that they are and maybe that's okay for them. Like maybe they don't need to be like jolted out of reality. Maybe they'll get a jolt, you know, maybe they'll get, well, we get like some kind of massive, you know, planetary wake up call. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of forces people to kind of come to the real and come into reality, like, you know, but yeah. Um, yeah, I try not to be so like critical and judgmental as much as I can. It's it's fucking hard though. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that whole like the progression of things in regard to like I I so want to believe that like our generation is somehow fucking special <laughs> and going to do something to turn things around or I'll often say things like you know, these systems are made up of all these different people, right? People created these things. So if all the different elements, again, like the ingredients change, will the final recipe look different? Um, and, and, and then is that though naive and that there are these sort of systems operating in a way that we don't have control over and we're kidding ourselves that by like making these changes, um, on an individual level are going to affect something collectively. Well, making changes on an individual level will certainly affect your world, you know, um, and your your world is the world to a certain extent. Um, I think it's really noble and, and I really, like, praise anybody that's trying to, like, change the world, save the world, right? Like, I'm very big into that. I, 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 I feel that that's something that's worthy in pursuing. Um, and I did feel something kind of special about our generation, you know, but I got really disheartened. I, um, when, when I was in college, uh, and we were, you know, the war on terror, terror was brewing and, you know, W was in charge. 
I really felt this like, man, there's like a real like rally. Like people are like, fuck this guy. Like get him out of office. Like we need to change things like anti-war. Like everybody was like really, at least where I was, like I just, I felt this sense in the, in the air. And then when, and then I became like obsessed with Obama. Like I started watching his speeches online and like my dad and I would talk and be like, this guy could be the next president. How great would that be? And he gave that speech like, at the Democratic National Convention where he's like, it's not the blue states and the red states. It's the United States. And it's like, man, this guy is a master magician, you know, really like awesome orator. At the time, I didn't know that, but I really was buying into what he was saying. And then when things didn't really change and like our generation, like I, I graduated college and I entered the workforce and, I got this stupid sales job and I'm sitting in this open office floor plan, but Hey, we got a keg and you know, we was like a casual Monday and Friday, like, you know, like this, these little gimmicks to get people to like slave away in the office for longer hours. Like, yeah, we're cool. We got a bouncy ball thing over here. Um, and, and then the occupy wall street stuff was going on. I'm like, Oh cool. It's back. Like the, 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 the fever is back. Like we're in this. And then that kind of went away. And I don't know. I mean, now I look at like the younger generation, like my, my cousin and my brothers, like this generation Z or whatever. And like, you know, I read something online. It was like generation Z is like into marketing and branding themselves. And they're like in favor of these things and that. And I'm like, Oh God, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I think that, Everybody has the capacity to enact change if they are aware that they have a choice and that if they, to quote Steve Jobs, like if they poke reality, like something will pop out on the other side, that that's like the best hope that we have. And in whatever way that people do that, I'm sure that there there's going to be nice little improvements that are happening. And we see it now, you know, we see it now happening, but on a grand level, I think we're kind of fucked. but I think that like, I, I think that maybe that's what we need. Like maybe we need to go through this like collective, uh, yeah. Collective fucking (laughs) like I think, you know, the, the, the planet's resilient. The, it, it, it doesn't need us that, you know, necessarily. Uh, but we got to also be careful. We live in an age of nuclear weapons and the United States military has 800 bases and over, 70 different countries and they're spending 700 billion dollars a year on war and empire and so who knows maybe we'll destroy the actual physical whole planet like in some star wars kind of death star situation um but maybe we'll just go through like a really tough ceremony and learn how to integrate the shadow of the species and that's that I'm that's what I'm hopeful for. Yeah. Yeah, the tagline to my podcast is fix yourself to fix the world. Like to do that first. And and I think if I have seen a trend or if I have faith in our generation that it's that willingness to deconstruct and like even if what we're doing on a personal level isn't actually affecting anything collectively directly or indirectly that if shit crumbles that we've been through whatever we've been through or experienced enough to like still move forward and walk forward that maybe like our generation's purpose is just to kind of withstand 
the horrors that are <laughs> around the corner and that that's noble, you know? Um, and maybe, I don't know, pass it off to the generation behind us to figure out how to put the pieces back together. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I think maybe one of the best things that we can do is try and learn from the, the bullshit that we've been through to pass on to the next generation. Like maybe that's the best thing that maybe we can't do anything directly uh, to cha- make this rapid change very quickly in our lifetimes, but maybe we can pass something on. Yeah. Um, and maybe that would be okay, but I, I'm a little selfish. I want it now. <laughs> yeah, I'm very impatient <laughs> as well. Um, before we wrap up, I, w- I saw that you're starting something or have started something about men's groups or working with men. And I talk extensively about gender and sexuality on my podcast. And one of the biggest reasons I think I started the podcast was um, right when the whole Me Too thing was happening. And here I was this like liberal young woman that like didn't understand it and didn't agree with what was going on and wanted to kind of like sit with men at the table. Not to say I didn't agree with the fact that like we should hold people accountable for abuse, but the silencing of, of men, the sort of um, demonizing of masculinity was, I thought extremely problematic. Um, And I would love to sort of hear from a male uh, millennial sort of like what you feel in this sort of climate and world and, and what you're doing in terms of these groups or supporting other men. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up. It's kind of an idea right now mm. in the works. Um, and I think it really came from the listeners of my show, I, I guess are majority male. Um, I actually really don't know, but it seemed I you know, I think, uh, I get a lot of messages from men that say, and they're in their kids kind of they're like 18 to 20 in mm. their twenties. And like, Hey, like that was great that you talked about those things because I didn't know that was okay to talk about as a guy. Um, and yeah, I like, I grew up in, in a very kind of like a macho environment and I never felt like I fitted with that but I kind of conformed to it a little bit and I never felt okay with it. And I love, uh, you know, like, like I, uh, my, like my girlfriend, for example, like she, I love when she's like in her element and like in her power and doing her thing. And like that, like I look at her in awe, like last night when she was on the panel, I'm like, Oh, she's like, she's doing it. Like that makes me feel good. And I think a lot, there's like a narrative of this thing of like what it means to be like a man. Like you have to be like masculine and you have to like, you know, be strong and you have to, you know, this is your woman and she's like yours and you, you make the rules and this kind of thing. And I think that's kind of fading away a little bit more to a certain extent, but there's still this kind of. There's the, there's this thing where it's like this is what this is what masculinity is right like so the the the, the talk with with women is like well th- we get these messages about body image and the perfect woman and all that stuff and guys get that too and, and guys get that too and and for some reason it's kind of looked at as like look you're like a white guy and you're like doing okay shut the fuck up you right. know and I just feel like. I'll give you an example. Like in college, like I felt really conflicted because I remember being in certain situations sometimes where I was like, okay, 
I remember a lot of like the language of the time was like, oh, like, oh, there's like a real creeper over there, you know, like girls would be like, yeah, he's kind of creep. And so I'm like, well, I don't want to be a creepy guy and I don't want to be, but I do want to get this girl. And from what I've been told, you have to be kind of like domineering and aggressive and kind of, you know, a man orders for a woman and, you know, this kind of crap. And so, but I felt like this conflict of like, well, I don't know what to do and I'm not sure how to be and should I put my hand out? Like there was just no way that I like, like, you know, cause all of my information is coming from like movies and TV and music. And, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that like men are human beings. We're human and like we can, we can cry and we can be afraid and, we can be scared and, and, and have shame and, you know, like, talk about it. Right. And that that's, that's, you know, adds to, I think, healthy masculinity, not takes away from it. And like this whole, like, oh, men are angry and abusive. So let's silence them and not give them a voice. It's like, wait a second. Like, that's probably coming from a place of like deep pain. Right. Even though they've been whatever privileged and in, in, to some extent, like, let's, let yeah. them talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and like this thing of privilege, like, yeah, I know I'm like, I'm globally speaking, like we're all really privileged. Right. I mean, you know, but it's this thing of like, look, I'm, I'm not privileged in, in like the department of height, you know, like I, I didn't like, that's not something that I've been rewarded with and women always like taller men. And so it's like, you know what I'm supposed to shut up and I, I'm not supposed to have like, I can't talk. I can't speak. I can't talk about my experience and my pain and that's not valid. And I understand, you know, like there's a lot, there's been sort of, you know, maybe some people that haven't been represented as much or, or something like that. But, um, I think, uh, my, my friends, uh, these guys that do comedy, the Lucas brothers, they're, two black comedians and twin identical twins. And we were hanging out and talking and they were telling me about, uh, this thing, this documentary about a poo and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, you know, but like my whole life, like I'm Italian. Like I grew up with like people antagonizing me about being Italian and like making jokes about like, Hey, how you doing? What is your mom, your mom in the mafia, your dad, like, and like the way that Italians are depicted and fat but I never, I never really was like, oh no, like that, you know. But that I felt that, and I think that we can all recall something like that in our lives that will allow us to relate to a deeper plight of somebody else's experience, you know. And I think that, like, when I was telling them this, I was saying like that was my experience, and I can kind of like tap into that experience, and now I can relate to like your the experience of you being black in in America, and like I understand like where you're coming from with that. Not necessarily to say like, you know, that like, Oh, like I'm hurt too. But like, it's just a, a vehicle for me to have a better understanding. If that makes sense. Yeah. Fucking empathy. Yeah. It's like key. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like your brevity, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for the explanation. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. I could probably keep going, but you've like been podcasting quite a bit. So I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time. The last two things that I, uh, want to ask, uh, one, I ask everyone if they could recommend a book to Ooh, every, all the wow. listeners, <laughs> which I realize is a, Hard question. Ooh, one book. 
Hmm. Uh, what I'm trying to think of like a book that would be like kind of relatable, like for this. Yeah, show. or just one that was like super influential for you and your journey, even if it was slightly off topic for the show. And if you want to I, say two, you know, I, won't. I, I yeah, no, I'll say uh, this book, Finite and Infinite Games, by James P. Kars. I I read that book when I was in Thailand and microdosing LSD, and uh, and it's 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 really ingrained in my like philosophy uh, of life. So yeah, finite and infinite games. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you? Find me on the internet. <laughs> find me in Denver. <laughs> uh, Mikeadelic is the name of the podcast. Talk about psychedelics and uh, liberty and being open and raw and real and vulnerable and destroying civilization. No, um, but you know all the kind of things that we're talking about on this show, I talk about on my show as well. And I'd love to have you on the show as well. Um, and yeah, you can find me Apple podcast, Spotify, YouTube, all that stuff, um, at Mike underscore podcast on Instagram. And the name of my website is Mike Brank.com B R A N C. Um, but yeah. And, and message me. I love like hearing from people and talking with people. So sweet. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you. All righty. Thanks for sticking around and listening to that episode. I highly recommend you check out, uh, Mike's show. Um, really cool that other people are doing similar things and I want to support them. So check out Mike's show, subscribe to his show, uh, tell your friends about it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Today I am going to play you out with, uh, a song as I always do. Uh, and I'm going to play society by Eddie Vedder. Um, and the reason I'm playing that uh, should be probably obvious, but it's also a song that was playing in Into the Wild, which I talked about a bit in the intro. And in my apartment in Topanga, I have these unfinished wood cabinets, two of them. And I wanted to make this apartment, it was sort of the first really official place that was just mine. Um, and I wanted to do whatever the hell I wanted to do with it and make it in sort of inspirational beautiful place to live. Um, and so what part of what I decided to do was to decorate these really boring, plain cabinets with quotes and photographs, um, which is so millennial of me, but that's what I did. And the very first quote that I typed up and I printed out was from the song. And the lyric is society. You're a crazy breed. I hope you're not lonely without me. Just thought that fit this show and what I'm talking about. Uh, let's band together people. We're not alone. I think in the support of community and friends and people we love, we can do many, many, many things. Love you all. Talk to you next week. It's a mystery to me. We have agreed we have agreed and you think you have to want more than you need until you have it all you won't be free society you're a crazy breed I hope you're not lonely without me Want more than you have, you 
think you need And when you think more than you want Your thoughts begin to bleed I think I need to find a bigger place Cause when you have more than you think You need more space Society Your crazy breed I hope you're not lonely Without me Society Crazy and deep I hope you're not lonely Without me Not long. 